it's, uh, it's, it's, it's chapel, so why don't we pray? Let's do that before I start jumping into uh, scripture and stuff about race and, and what have you. Would you bow your heads with me? Uh, more importantly, your hearts, and let's just go before the Lord in, in a word of prayer, shall we? Uh, Father, we come before you, and I pray that you would bless this time that we have together. I pray for the, the students in this room especially as they uh, gear up for the week of studies. And Lord, I, I pray that you would bless their studies, that you would bless the things before them, um, the anxieties, the burdens, and, and the stuff that's going on in their life. Uh, Lord, bless my brothers and sisters here this morning. Uh, bless this chapel service here this morning. Bless the week, we pray, um, that as we talk about uh, culture and, and, and race, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear how your word would have us, your, your supreme word would have us uh, process and see these things. So Lord, we come before you this morning and we, uh, we submit ourselves to you and we pray that you would bless this week and you would shape us in and through it. Have your way with us here this morning, we pray, in the mighty, matchless, majestic, most high name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. The title of my message this morning is Lost Adam and Los Angeles. Some of the members of the TMU community heard me give a lecture on Los Angeles history and racism at a Gospel Coalition gathering last year, and they asked me if I'd be willing to come and to share some of the racial urban history with the students of TMU in a chapel message. So here I am. Uh, while I'm a researcher of Los Angeles, my primary calling and greatest joy Next to being in Christ as a churchman and a husband and a father is my work as a pastor in the city of Los Angeles. And that said, before we get into modern urban history and we look at some of the mess in modern urban history, I need to take you into the ancient, pristine, rural history. The history of the unblemished garden and the history of our blemished father Adam and our mother Eve. TMU students, esteemed faculty, and listening community members, I have three broad biblical theological propositions up front that I want to offer you as foundations for reflecting on the latter history of Los Angeles that we'll get into. And as I get into the latter history and I make various subpoints and sidebars along the way, if I lose you, please come back to these three things that I want to submit to you in hopes that you will embrace them in biblical fidelity and you will give yourselves to them with measured and prayerful action in Christian conviction. So first, I want to submit to you this. I want to submit to you that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. Second, I want to submit to you that the triune God of heaven has sovereignly created good works for you, the elect in Christ, to advance by and for his providential and gracious good. Finally, I want to submit to you that the supreme good of the God of the Bible in this age is his glorious gospel, which foreshadows what is supposed to be, and it anticipates what is to come in the sovereign plan of the Father, in the power of the Spirit, by and through the ministry of the church and the glorious return of the eternal Son. These are my three points. If I lose you anywhere, come back to these. Let me make these points a little more simple because they're a bit wordy. If I could wordsmith them, I would put it to you like this. Point number one, not this, the fallen world. Point number two, yes this, faith and works. Point number three, later this, the Father's will. So with these points before you, let me begin with the first point. Not this, the fallen world. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Noted Calvinist theologian Dr. Cornelius Plantinga wrote a fantastic little book that is entitled not the way that it is supposed to be subtitle a breviary of sin now this book is a book of homardiology that is it gets into the doctrine of sin the title sort of says it all and this is my first point the world is not the way that it's supposed to be it's fallen you watch the news harry was just talking about the the news and the culture and the messages that we see in the media and he use the word divisive, that they're often divisive. You watch the news, you see the media, you hear reports of violence and greed and malice and sexual perversion and on and on and on. The media stream is evidential proof of what the Apostle Paul described in the opening chapter of his letter to the Romans concerning the total depravity of humanity, which is spiraling out of control. 
as humanity professes itself to be fine, all the while falling apart at the feet. As the Apostle Paul describes this depravity in his letter to the Romans, he takes his readers into the theology of Bereshit, what we call in English the book of Genesis. Bereshit is the first word in the book of Genesis in the beginning. Genesis is an inspired, historical, and inerrant book of beginnings. The text gives us not just the beginning of the universe and our world, but it also gives us the beginning of the media and the news, the beginning of sin, if you will. What exactly is sin? The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it succinctly as any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. The aforementioned media and news that is out there, that rages, that has all these things in it, it captures the lawlessness or the want or lack of conformity unto God's law in it. The antinomian world we live in. Have you heard that phrase, antinomian, anti, against, namos, which is the word for law, lawlessness, antinomianism? As you watch the media, you see antinomianism, you see lawlessness, and you see, as the news reports the news, that the newscasters themselves can't make sense out of what is going on in their secularized and psychologized fallen rationale. Now more closer to home, when you turn off the media... When you turn off the tube and the tablet and the texts, there is still news that is around you in your own life. You still have your family. You still have relationships. I, I, I gather that a lot of you live in dorms. You have roommates. And I, I it's a Christian college, so I assume there's no problems there, right? But <laughs> we have our own news to deal with. We have our own dysfunction to deal with. We have our own violence and distortion and what have you around us when we turn off the tube, the tablet, and the text. You still see sin around you, and you can't turn it off. The drama, the hurt, the dysfunction. And you know what? It's not just out there in your roommates or in your families or in your friends. It's not just out there. It's in here. It's in here. You spend time looking at your own heart and what you find within, you find a want of conformity unto so you spend time thinking about your life and you see a transgression of the law of God in your own life. In fact, you see many examples of it. Surely, as you look back at your life, you have regrets. As you think in the present, no doubt there are temptations and antinomian pitfalls around you. Now, earlier I referenced the book of Romans and the Apostle Paul, his opening chapter that speaks about sin, and he takes his readers back, his readers back in Rome, he takes them back into the Garden of Eden. A few chapters after the opening section on depravity, the Apostle Paul says very specifically that this sin within and this sin without that I'm describing in terms of our media, our families, our friends, our roommates, our relationships, our histories, and our hearts, it is all the result of the federal head of humanity, our father Adam. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we read from the pen of the Apostle Paul and the inspiration of the Spirit, that through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul says that sin entered the world through one man. He names that man in verse 14. It is Adam, Adam. The sin then that is without and the sin that is within comes from him, our federal head. This one man, and indeed this one evil of this one man, is very important, and it underlies the theology of things with regard to my first point, things not being the way they're supposed to be. We see the supposed to be in the original creation, in the book of Genesis, which Paul uses in his writing. If you have Bibles, or you have Bibles on your phones, or whatever, if you could, turn to the book of Genesis with me. There isn't time this morning for me to offer an extended exposition, or exegetical handling of the text, this wondrous text, this historic book. But it isn't necessary for our purposes this morning, for the text is perspicuous. I love that word, perspicuous. You talk about the doctrine of perspicuity, hopefully, in your Bible classes. What I love about the word perspicuous is it's not that perspicuous. Perspicuous means obvious, but most people don't know that. And anyway, the text of Scripture is perspicuous. I need not labor in exposition or exegesis this morning. We have at the time. But as you look at the text, I want you to just look at the opening text of Genesis chapter 1, with your eyes, and as you're listening to me ramble, just read. Read as you listen. Get into the 
opening chapter. Look at what God is doing. See how he is sovereign over all things. Notice as you're reading with your eyes in Genesis chapter 1, the repetition of the phrase, God speaks and God sees. God, God saw. You see this repetition of him speaking, and then it says God saw. And then a repetition of the word tov, which is the word that we translate as good. Draw your eyes to chapter 1, verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25. You see the repetition, good, 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 good. God creates, and as he forms creation, he says it's good. As he's, as he's wrapping things up in verse 31, he looks at it all and he says, it's tov ma'od, that is very good. Now, I submit to you with this first point that things aren't the way that they are supposed to be. When we enter into the book of Genesis, we find how things are supposed to be. They're supposed to be good. But within a few chapters, things go bad. In the second chapter, move from chapter 1 into the second chapter, you have this bird's-eye view of creation in chapter 1, and you get a zoom in on the same creation account in chapter 2, giving you more insight into anthropology and the origins of man and the telos of man this image-bearer of God, this image-bearing creature, man, and this life-giving creature, woman, who are to be joined together in marriage for procreation, pleasure, purpose, prosperity, and proskunuo, which is a word that means worship. The two were made, man and woman, to worship God, to serve God, to live for God, and to live in this tov creation, this good creation. The scene, as you're reading with your eyes, you, you ought to note that it's beautiful, it's beautiful, isn't it? The perfect garden that is made by God for our first parents to live in is filled with beauty and joy and innocence and love and oneness and rest. Tragically, paradise is lost in the next chapter as you move with your eyes from chapter 1 to chapter 2 into chapter 3. And you see our father and our mother transgress the law of God in the garden, bringing about what theologians refer to as the fall. Now when we talk about the fall, it is important to note that the word fall can be misheard because the word fall sort of sounds like I walked over here and I fell off the stage. Like, it's an accident. I tripped. The fall isn't someone tripping. If anything, perhaps we ought to refer to the fall as a jump, as a leap. They jump right into a rebellion against God and they choose to believe. As you're reading it with your eyes, you see this. They choose to believe the serpent over the sovereign. They choose to follow the creature over the creator. The serpent, this creature, is identified in the book of Revelation in chapter 12, verse 9, and 20, verse 2, as none other than Satan. Our father and our mother join a demonic rebel army. They bring us into a cosmic war with the Lord of hosts, whose holy fire burns against sin and whose justice demands a penalty. You rebel against the giver of life? Well, punishment must fit the crime. He's the one who has given you life. Punishment fits the crime. What ought the punishment be? Death. So death comes. He gave you innocence. So it is logical that guilt and shame will follow. He gave you rest. So it is logical that, that frustration and labor will come. He gave humanity marriage and oneness. So it is logical and it is no wonder that human relationships show the antithesis of this today. They are in peril. Look at chapter 3. Look at it with your eyes. You see God speaking in chapter 3 to these rebels, our father and our mother. You, you, you see the humans as they speak back to God. And what are they doing? They're blame shifting. They're blame shifting in the presence of God who sees their hearts. And they start blaming each other and fighting with each other. You see that? Their relationships are ruined. The confusion of sin is wrecking their minds, their hearts and their relationships. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Let's read it. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man, and he said, Where are you? Verse 10, he said, I, I heard a sound of you in the garden, but I was uh, afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. What foolishness. To hide yourself from the omnipresent God? Who not to play Marco Polo with, right? God. I mean, you want to play hide-and-go-seek with Yahweh? That's no fun. He knows where you are all the time. 
But man foolishly tries to cover his sin from the righteous and the just sovereign. Man has become, in the words of Scripture, an enemy of God. And the passage continues. Man will even have the audacity, as the passage continues, man has the audacity even not just to blame each other, but to blame God for his sin. It's your fault, God. You, you gave me her. This is all your fault. Fallen man shakes the fist at God. Fallen man is hostile to God. Fallen man is utterly disconnected from God. You know, we have gospel tracts that explain the gospel, which is, which is what I'm ultimately laying out for you by way of introduction today. Gospel tracts. Have you seen these gospel tracts? And often in these gospel tracts, you have these sort of two, two cliffs. And on the one side, you have man, and then you have this great chasm. And often there will be, you know, sort of sin or whatever in the middle, often written out. And then on the other side, you, you, you have this description and, and this, this portrait of sort of God. And so there's this chasm. This depicts the condition of fallen man. This explains the news and the media and the things that we feel within the guilt and the shame and the hiding. But there's more. There's more to this picture I want you to see. There's something that the cliff doesn't actually depict too well. You see, in these graphics, there's typically a, a, a single figurine on one side. There's just one man that's sort of standing there, and it makes the problem rather individualistic, as though the problem of the world is just a case-by-case -case matter. It's not. Adam is the federal head. He represents us all. The wages of sin is death, and it hangs over us all. This death is not just biological, it is total. You have the opposite of the golden touch as children of Adam. We have a death touch, and we bring death wherever we go. So you see, the graphic doesn't capture the chasm all that well. For you art students in the room, if one of you wants to take it upon yourself, what we need to do is fill this with a sea of people. And the people on this side that are the children of Adam, that are hostile to God, on this side, we need to fill it with chasms in between people and show people at odds with one another and also with their creator, for that is the theology that we find in the book of Genesis. As you keep reading the book of Genesis, you see it pronounced. If your eyes are still in the text, draw them to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, what do you see? Blood crying out from the ground. The ground is crying out. There's blood spilled. Sibling rivalry, murder, hate, violence. And then in chapter 6, draw your eyes in chapter 6, verse 5 of chapter 6, we read, The Lord God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord God was sorry, verse 6, that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved. God was in his heart. Now understand that God is impassable and mutable, so the language here has an anthropomorphic texture to it that is intended to grab the reader to see the very point that I have before you that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And as a sub-point under this, you need to see that things aren't the way they're supposed to be vertically in our relationship with God and also horizontally in our relationships with one another. Sin is cutting and tearing both ways. Sin has ruined man's relationship with heaven and has ruined man's relationship with the earth. And in the earth, recall in Genesis, maybe you read it with your eyes, something about dominion, that God gave us dominion to exercise in the earth. In the fall, what we do with dominion is we use it to devour the social order that God designed for humanity. The biblical record, as you continue in the book of Genesis, shows people groups forming, ethnic groups forming. In fact, you have an amazing resource in your community that was uh, edited by your president, John MacArthur, Biblical Doctrine. If you have this text, write it down, page 439 through 443. Read that section. It accounts for you how, in the creation, as, as man is going, it, it accounts for you how, how, how people start forming groups and how ethnic groups begin to form and how nations begin to form. And if you take this textbook and you read in the homardiology sections about sin, you see what man does. Groups form, and these groups are hostile to one another. The nations rage against one another. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. We're at odds with the Creator, and we're at odds with one another. 
Noted theologian Dr. D.A. Carson describes it well when he wrote, Consumed by our own self-focus, we desire to dominate and manipulate others. Here is the beginning of fences, of rape, of greed, of malice, of nurtured bitterness, and of war. I need you to see this. Because when I survey things a long way from the garden, when we get into the city of Los Angeles, as I discuss the brokenness and the social disorder in the city of Los Angeles, you need to have Genesis in mind. The problem of the city is a problem of the garden. The issue of all social evils come back to the great evil of the fall. And I need you to see this so that you won't be like our father and our mother and blame things on others. But that so you will see where the blame lies with fallen humanity declaring war on God to taste the forbidden fruit and therein souring the creation. So when we look at Genesis and when we look at Los Angeles, I need you to keep both of those in mind. When we look at Los Angeles, you need to keep lost Adam in mind. And I want us to lament the fallen world that we live in because it's not the way that it's supposed to be. And I want us to seek after the one who walked with man in the garden to be gracious to sinners as he was in that day in Genesis when he didn't immediately strike our father and our mother dead, but instead he clothed them with a sacrifice. And he promised them something we call the proto-evangelion, or sometimes as it is translated, proto-evangelium. This takes you into Genesis again. Hopefully you still have the text open. Draw your eyes to chapter 3, verse 15. God promised, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. God promises in this passage to send one through childbirth who would save the world by overthrowing the darkness of the serpent in the aftermath of the fall. The motif of the offspring of the woman is picked up. Draw your eyes into chapter 4. Look at verse 25 and you see the birth of Seth. Subsequently, through the rest of the book of Genesis, you have a tracing of the single line of Seth's descendants, observing that it will eventually produce a king through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And as we read through Genesis, the promised seed passed to Abraham. And God spoke promises to Abraham. And he promised to bless his offspring. And you read through the Bible, and you read through Genesis, and you read through the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, and you read all about this. And you keep reading past the Torah, and you follow the promise of the seed. And you find yourself into the gospel accounts, and two gospel accounts in particular. And you find them tracing the seed of Genesis 3 to Jesus the Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 makes the case that the seed is Christ. And so while I said that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, please don't mishear me. God's plan A is unraveling as he has ordained. The seed crusher is not a plan B. God is sovereign. God is over all. God will not be thwarted. And though we read in Genesis chapter 6 about the grief and the sadness of God, we read in Hebrews chapter 12 about the joy set down before him, the one who endured the cross. Amen? The God who clothed our father and mother in the garden would now clothe us in Christ. The God who walked in the cool of the garden would walk in the garden of Gethsemane. The God who made the earth with mineral for iron and, and wood would be impaled on a wooden cross with iron nails. This God came in covenantal faithfulness to a people of promise, the children of Abram, and he was rejected. But he still came. And he, the seed, Christ, raised up a missionary community, the church to herald his coming, and his covenantal faithfulness to Israel and the nations. This leads me to the second point on your outline. This is basically a quote from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. The triune God of heaven has sovereignly created good works for you, the elect in Christ, to advance by his providential and gracious good. Now, this is directly relying on Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I find it helpful to quote your president, Dr. John MacArthur, here in his commentary on Ephesians 2, 10. And he writes, although they have no gain in salvation, good works have a great deal to do with living out salvation. No good, no good works can produce salvation, but many good works are produced by salvation. The same power that created us in Christ Jesus empowers us to do good works for which he has redeemed us. These are the verifiers of true salvation. Righteous attitudes, righteous acts, they, they proceed from the transformed life now living. 
it is worth noting, this is in reference to Ephesians 2.10, and it talks about these works that God has prepared for us, those who are in Christ the elect. And as you continue reading in the second chapter of Ephesians, what you see Paul beginning to address there is ethnic tensions between Jews and Gentiles. In a Roman culture, in a Roman city, Ephesus, and he begins to speak about what we have covered, how sin alienates us vertically from God and horizontally from one another. And he uplifts Christ and he calls them into this oneness in the midst of a divided and oppressive society. Rome was a messed up place. It was pagan. Ephesus was a very hard place to be. The economy of Rome itself was built on slavery and oppression. The government was corrupt. The cities were full of perversion, paganism, and so much darkness. In fact, we read in the letters of the New Testament and we were reminded of some dark places where the light of the gospel shined and humans were reconciled to God, and in good works they began to be reconciled with one another in the church to reflect the oneness of the God that we worship. Now, I've laid some theological foundations, so if you will, journey with me from Rome. Journey with me from the Garden of Eden into the modern world, into the city of Los Angeles. We're, out, we're in this county, L.A., and hopefully all of you in this room, hopefully all of you in this room are in good biblical churches, Perhaps churches tied to the city. Hopefully you are trying to make sense of this place, Los Angeles, as students here. And you're, you're relying, hopefully, on the power of the gospel to transform sinners and to see good works in this place to transform things. You know, Los Angeles is a unique place. It has a unique, a, a unique history. It has a unique makeup. The ethnic diversity of, of contemporary L.A. is observably profound. You know that we have 220 identified languages in Los Angeles? We have residents from more than 140 countries in Los Angeles. L.A. is home to more diversity than any other city in the world. In many ways, the diversity here in Los Angeles presents us with a blessing as we think about our God, the Lord of the nations, and the Son who will come to the kingdom in Israel and will restore the nations. What we read about in Revelation with the gathering of the nations before His throne, the beautiful scene of diversity and harmony, and more importantly, worship. We, we get to kind of see that in a place like Los Angeles but things aren't the way they're supposed to be. The diversity, the harmony, and the worship that we see in Revelation as, as all people groups are gathered before the throne of God when Christ comes, we don't exactly see that in our city. We look at the city and we see diversity, but it's not in harmony, it's in hurt. The diverse urban centers are sinfully fragmented, leaving Christ's church with a mission and a frustrated met met metropolis that is in constant tensions around race. You bring up the, com the, the conversation or the topic of race and you find there's a lot of hurt and a lot of confusion. Race has a, has a, has a tragic place in the history of Los Angeles and in the L.A. landscape. You know, we're approaching the 25th anniversary of the L.A. riot. 63 people who were killed and 23 deaths that still remain unsolved and the general hurt of it all resolved. You see on these slides, on the one side, what it looked like back then and what it looks like now the formlessness and what it looks like now. You look at these pictures. I, I've lived in L.A. my whole life. I, I've lived through riots. I, in fact, before going into the ministry, I work, I work for the police. I've seen a lot of darkness in my life, and these pictures are heavy to me. These are places that I know. This is the antithesis of Eden. In Genesis, as God is, is filling the formless, we saw it was tov, it was good, and yet in the urban landscape, we see formlessness. We see empty lots. We see lingering hurts. Where did it all come from? I've already laid the foundation. I took you to Genesis and Romans. We know where it came from. It came from sin. It came from Adam. It came from our father. We see the lawlessness of the city is directly tied to the godlessness of its inhabitants who are children of Adam. The vertical and the horizontal impacts of sin that we discussed in the book of Genesis are still rippling through the creation. So we live in a city that is vertically far from God. L.A. is vertically far from God. And as a result of this, it is horizontally far from one another in loving their neighbors. In a city that rejects the gospel, in a city with many false churches that have no gospel at all to proclaim, we should not be surprised to see horizontal disarray. And for purposes of this lecture, I'm, I'm focusing on sort of the racial dimensions of disarray and disorder. Los Angeles is hurting. You know, Los Angeles is part of a wider history of California, is part of a wider history of our country. And in the broader history of the, the, the United States and the formation of her states, if you've taken any history classes, you know that it is fraught with horrific racism. Hence, it is no wonder that the cities of our nation are racially divided today. 
And the church needs to return to Genesis. We need to use our theological resources to explain to the watching world why this is the way that it is. Genesis records the fall. Torah explains the history of the fall. Human disorder, oppression, violence, slavery, segregation, all that. We have that in the holy text of Scripture. In a sense, our city, our state, our country's history is a testimony to the veracity of Scripture and the book of Genesis in particular. Our beloved country and its economic and social infrastructures were built on the very evils that we read about in the book of Genesis, and particularly in Torah. You know, a driving theme in the history of Torah involves Israel, the people of Israel being rescued from slavery, and you know our nation has a history of slavery. While the transatlantic slave trade is over, modern human trafficking isn't. It still thrives. I'll say that for another time. But while the transatlantic is over, we still have to realize that there's still emotions, there's still economics, there's still cultural issues that are tied to that that are rippling out. The fact is our economy was almost entirely built on free labor and production that was gained in the transatlantic slave trade. And so as Bible-believing Christians, we worship a God who has rescued slaves. And so we have a unique voice as we herald the gospel in saving grace and we decry evil in the world in common grace. So I want to talk about L.A., let's talk about California, let's talk about the United States. You have to keep all of this in mind. For hundreds of years, the slavery that we read about in Scripture, uh, like Israel and Egypt, same thing happens here. The slavery of America was both large and legal. At the time of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, slavery thrived in all 13 colonies. By the time of the American Revolution in 1775 through 1783, the status of slaves was institutionalized in a racial caste system against humans with black skin. While Congress banned the importation of slaves, in 1808, during the Jefferson administration, illegal smuggling continued and the legal domestic slave trading boomed with slave populations that are estimated around 4 million. As Americans colonized native lands, Indians were also enslaved. I wish I had time to get into the history of California and the enslavement of indigenous peoples here, but we don't have time. In any case, the 1800s. Very slow movements were being taken towards abolishing slavery. In 1850, the rich cotton-growing industry in the South fueled black slaves who were threatening to succeed from the Union. And in time, the largest denomination in our country was formed, the Southern Baptist. They rallied around the Southern Baptist fighting for slavery. That's how the denomination got started. Yale University maintains a library of slave texts and sermons and publications of white churches in this era, and they are heartbreaking to read. I have spent countless hours in this library. It grieves my heart. Most evangelicals were pro-slave. Even our modern heroes, like the 1700s theologian Jonathan Edwards, who I love and I adore, the fact of the matter is he owned humans. The great theologian who I, I love and adore, Charles Hodge of Princeton in the 1800s, argued for race segregation and slavery. In the 1860s, civil war breaks out. Emancipation Proclamation comes, 1863, which basically allowed... Blacks to join the Union Army, almost 200,000 did, but they were paid essentially slave wages and were given manual jobs that were reminiscent of slavery. Nonetheless, the extra soldiers helped them win the war in 1865. Now, after the war, we enter into a period that historians refer to as the Reconstruction. Your students, this is a great book to check out of your library. Hopefully you have it. Dr. Mark Knoll wrote an excellent book on the Civil War as a theological crisis. You need to see that history isn't just history happening in a vacuum. There's theology that drives it an insightful work that gets into the issues of theology in this day of Reconstruction. In the era of Reconstruction, federal laws protected the rights of freed slaves. However, racism was alive and well. In fact, it was booming. After the withdrawal of federal troops in 1876, things got really bad for black Americans. Blacks were freed, but they were oppressed so badly that, 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 that it was basically like they weren't free. And I have in mind here Jim Crow, which made certain that blacks would be segregated and be oppressed and even be suppressed they wouldn't have the ability to vote in a democracy. Understand that the full rights for blacks would await the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It is worth noting that while the federal law made slavery illegal, it still continued in the Reconstruction. In fact, from 1877 until well after World War II, southern states did little to protect blacks from forms of re-enslavement. Douglas Blackman, who was an investigative uh, uh, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal had a 2009 Pulitzer Prize book that was entitled Slavery by Another Name, The Reenslavement of Black Americans from Civil War to World War II, which documents this history. A meticulously researched book 
Blackman shows how slavery continued and tragically through state powers. It's a sad history that impacts and has a ripple effect into the 1900s. And so then we have to understand that in the 1900s, forms of slavery still existed in the United States. Though the transatlantic was gone, though Jim Crow was seemingly gone, things are still happening. And here's where we have a voice, brothers and sisters, that even though laws were changing, human hearts weren't. And here's where we have a voice, brothers and sisters, because our scripture tells us this, that a righteous law does not change an unrighteous heart. The law of God does not change us. It does not save us. The law of God does what? It exposes our sin and shows us that we have a need for a Savior. And so when the people of God rely on the powers of the fallen earth so as to change human hearts, you see, that doesn't happen. You read this history. I'm all for having good laws, by the way. But what we have to understand is those laws didn't change people's hearts. We know that sin is vertical and horizontal, and so we see sin rippling through. And in terms of the history we're discussing, we shouldn't be surprised as readers of the Bible because we, we know this. We, we saw that in Genesis. We, we, we saw what happens. In his book, Race, Reform, and Rebellion, Manny Marby illustrates how poverty, unemployment, and deteriorating urban infrastructures have hammered Afri African Americans in the post-war era in the 1900s all the way up to the 1990s. History documents impoverished and racialized neighborhoods throughout our country <laughs> and these were made, excuse me, by very intentional manipulation of banking and law and real estate, which created really a revived version of the Jim Crow that has a bit of a metropolitan veneer. So that's U.S. history broadly. Let's zoom into California quickly, and then we'll get to L.A. The race history of California is woven into the infrastructure of the state and its cities. And since sin weaves horizontally and vertically, I want to say that we mustn't be surprised when we're looking at these things. We should expect these things. I mean, after all, what I have in mind here is that we see these problems in the social order, but as I look at the spiritual order of California, I see a mess. I see, as your institution has done well to bring remedy to, a lot of strange fire that's going on in Southern California. I see a lot of churches doing a lot of shenanigans. I, I have in mind a history particular from Dr. Kim Riddlebarger where he compares Southern California church history to the burned-over district of Charles Finney, the Christian cults, Groups like TBN, they all begin in Southern California. The drive-in self-help psychology of Robert Schuller, Crystal Cathedral, the so-called seeker-sensitive saddlebacks, the Amy Simple McPherson, her Angeles Temple that was the largest church, I'm going to put that in quotes, in Los Angeles. I could go on with the madness of Southern California Christianity. And so as we see that vertical madness going on, it should be no surprise that in Los Angeles we have all this horizontal madness. Mike Davis, a noted researcher of Los Angeles, writes this, that L.A. is the nation's capital of racial violence. He notes the overall pattern of white supremacist violence throughout Los Angeles' metropolitan periphery. In the post-war era, we have all these racist ideologies, pragmatic racial segregation that shapes the city. In the pre-war urban planning of the city, the fact of the matter is, in Los Angeles, if you were black, you were not allowed in. You know the 75-mile coastline of Los Angeles County? It's, a be it's beautiful, but guess what? If you were black, you weren't allowed to go to the beach in Los Angeles. You couldn't go to the water. You couldn't go to the sand in Los Angeles. Housing deeds in Los Angeles neighborhoods included racially preventative covenants that prohibited the sale of homes to black buyers. I say this because often we think, I grew up in L.A., I thought, oh, this didn't happen in L.A., like, that happened back in the South with, like, Southerners or whatever, no offense to Southerners in the house, but I just, I thought that, that was somewhere else, surely not here. Oh, no, it happened here in Los Angeles. So as time progresses, civil rights advance, slowly blacks are allowed to move into neighborhoods that previously they weren't allowed to move into, and as they move into neighborhoods, people flee those neighborhoods. And so those neighborhoods that they newly get into as you follow the history, then you see the powers of the state coming in and actually taking those neighborhoods and bulldozing them to form freeways and to form icons like Hollywood and Dodger Stadium and Disneyland. Professor Al Eric Avila of, of UCLA has documented the history of racial city development and how as neighborhoods were, were transitioning and blacks were moving into neighborhoods, how those neighborhoods were then bulldozed 
Our, our highways, our massive entertainment icons actually stand as reflections of a past racial strife that revealed the millions and the millions of dollars that people would spend to pave the way of separation in concrete. In the post-war era, there was a Hollywood version of Jim Crow in California. Lawrence Culver explains, California did not enshrine Jim Crow in its constitution as happened in the American South. Nevertheless, racism could sometimes be just as pervasive in greater Los Angeles as in cities of the South, with African Americans often suffering as the targets of white hostility. In a complex web of laws regulating housing, land ownership, labor, and marriage that targeted people of color. Now, speaking of marriage, you know that California had misogynation laws? Have you heard that word, misogynation? It comes from a Latin word, misere, which means to mix, and genus, which means kind. There's all these anti-misogenation laws that were going on that said, you cannot marry someone who is not white if you're white. And, and you know, anti-misogenation laws were a part of American law until it was ruled unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court in Loving v. Virginia in 1967. I need you to see this, because I think a lot of people, they sort of disconnect, they don't know the history, so they think, this stuff happened a long time ago. Particularly from a white perspective, you, you, you might think, that, that happened so long ago. Why are people still talking about this? Why are people mad or hurt over this? It wasn't that long ago. As the civil rights movement gained sway in the public consciousness and diversity came into white spaces, the obvious Jim Crow opposition began to become elusive, and it shifted in its, in its language. And so conversations become more about real estate and, and about property values and things like this as opposed to actually talking about race. Without uh, an, an evangelical who's walking in Ephesians 2 good works and raising their voice to decry this sin, not to mention actually preaching the gospel, such historic injustice goes on in Los Angeles unchecked, and as a result of this today, African Americans are the least likely of all ethnic groups to own a home in Los Angeles. It must be acknowledged that as Alexander Madrigal notes, that the free-willing opportunity that is associated with 20th century California, it just wasn't available to black residents. And that ex exclusion reverberates in our neighborhoods and our communities today. However, others could free-will, and they did free-will properties. And their properties skyrocketed in value as people left neighborhoods that were diversifying, moved to other neighborhoods, drove those neighborhoods down, and established neighborhoods that some social scientists have referred to whitetopia. It's a sad history. So 20th century, diversity begins to grow, mainly in Los Angeles because there was a need for labor. Due to labor shortages, you have thousands and thousands who travel from Jim Crow states who stream into Los Angeles. But what they find in Los Angeles in the 1900s was what it looked like in Los Angeles in the 1800s. Here you have a picture of a white mob gathering at a home that I have spent time praying in front of. My heart grieves for my city over this. As you see this history, it's deplorable. But I go back to the garden, and I know where it all began. As Los Angeles began to diversify, white Angelinos avoided sharing residential space with non-whites. They began to move, hence we have the phrase, white flight. I, I hail from Inglewood. I don't know if you've heard about Inglewood. That's where I'm from. And so I do a lot of research in urban centers. Growing up in Inglewood, I was the only white male in my school. I didn't think much of it. I didn't realize that I would become a pastor in a diverse urban context. And, but the Lord is sovereign over this, as we saw in Ephesians 2. He prepares these good works for us. Anyway, in researching these things, this is an ad from the paper in Inglewood, where I live. And notice how they advertised Inglewood at the time, when Inglewood was all white. And they say, no Mongolians or Negroes. No lawlessness is here. The newcomer will be made to feel at home. It's a sad history. It's in the papers. And what's really sad is that much of the battleground happened around schools in Los Angeles. In the 1940s and the 1950s, schools began to be the war zone. And racism was targeted at schools as schools had to desegregate. And a lot of that happens in Los Angeles and California. California was, in fact, a catalyst in the national awakening of this. In the 1940s, there was a case, Mendez versus Westminster School in Orange County. Orange County had these segregated schools. There was a group of Mexican dads and their kids, and they were, they were just tired of their kids being sent to quote-unquote Mexican schools, so they sued. And, and the court case, they, they won. And it paved the way for desegregation. It was great. But the case was a bit limited in that the argument that was made in court for Mexicans 
they basically argued that Mexicans are white, and they used an enforcement of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in the Mexican-American War to do this. So they won, but it, did, it really wasn't good because it was like, hey, we're whites, so let us go to white schools. But whatever, we'll take it. So the ball gets rolling. And in 1954, the ball rolled to the Supreme Court with Brown versus Board of Education, which made it illegal to segregate schools on the basis of race, but it still continued. And the reality is, again, laws don't change hearts. We must rely on the power of God for this. The impetus of the government, uh, we, we, we see dr- driven home. And the potence of the gospel, we see our need for this. Uh, God raised up a little girl, I believe, Mary Crawford, who became a catalyst for cultural change in 1961 when she, a black girl, sought to enroll at Southgate High School. It was the closest school to her home in Los Angeles, but she was denied. The school was fighting desegregation, and so LAUSD sent her to a distant school, the Jordan School, which was 99% black, and Mary's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Crawford, filed a suit with the Los Angeles Supreme Court. It was ignored. 1963, Crawford's case goes before the L.A. Board of Education, and it ends up at the California Supreme Court, who then called upon the school district to provide the court with a planning of desegregation and to have it done by 1977. In 1978, the plan was implemented, but schools still rallied, and they fought desegregation. In fact, they petitioned in two cases, Bus Stop versus L.A. Board of Education, and both of those cases failed. In the 1960s, the Crawford case and others were making headway in courts. L.A. schools were in violation of state and federal jurisprudence, The images of school desegregation are heartbreaking. Look at little Ruby Bridges. She just wants to go to school. Famously captured in Norman Rockwell's art. Have you seen this painting before? It's real history. In the 1970s, as things progress, legal battles continue. There's a grip of racism over the city that remains very tight, and the Los Angeles School Board began to actively call for the desegregation of its schools, but not without conflict. This goes on into the, into, the, into the 80s. I have done research on this where I take the yearbooks of the school and you can go back in the early 1900s, you could go into the post-war and you see white faces, white faces, white faces. You see a couple black faces appear and then, and then within a five-year span, the whole thing turns black. What was going on? Historian Josh, notes, Josh uh, Sides notes that it is the defining characteristic of America's race problem with racial segregation of schools. Los Angeles represented America's race problem at its worst. Let me tell you how this started for me. So I, I shared with you that I grew up in a neighborhood where I was the only white kid. I didn't think much of it growing up. I remember in the sixth grade, one of my friends asked me if I was white. And I was like, I guess, you know. And he, <laughs> he laughed at me like, ah. And I was like, all right. You know, like I, I, didn't, I didn't think of it. I didn't grow up that way. And so I'm in the inner city, I, I go to a school where I'm the only white kid, but on Sundays I go to a church that is all white in a neighborhood that is all black and brown. I didn't think much of this as a kid. It's just kind of like, oh, hey, I go to church, there's a bunch of white people, I go to school, there's no white people. Hey, the neighborhood around my church, like, we don't eat here, we don't go here, why do we drive here? Like, what is this about? Didn't think anything of it. The Lord called me into ministry. I went to Bible college and seminary and stuff, long story short. And I started pastoring a church. And I'm pastoring a church. I've been there 17 years. And I started learning about the history of the church. And the church was planted out of a church in the downtown. The downtown church is like over 100 years old. And I actually chased down some of these ministers that planted these churches on the west side. And I, I wanted to hear about their stories of church planting. And so I'm, I'm sitting with some of them. And they began to share with me how they planted these churches. And it wasn't we had a fire to preach the gospel and exposit God's word. It was, well, you know, the downtown was changing. We were worried our children might intermarry. We left our neighborhoods, we needed a place to worship, and we planted our churches. And so then I start capturing these stories, and I'm going, whoa, this is crazy. Like this, I, the underbelly of this thing, I, I didn't expect to hear these things. Droves of white Christians who left diversifying urban centers. I mean, popular, really popular places as well. A church that I adore, Dr. Vernon McGee pastor there. I love Vernon McGee. I love learning with Jay Vernon on KKLA. Maybe you hear him on the radio. The Church of the Open Door. It was founded by white evangelicals. Very esteemed and, 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 and a great ministry in downtown Los Angeles. It was pastored by great saints like R.A. Torrey and Louis Talbot. Louis Talbot, I'm, 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 you know, I rep Biola, sorry, Masters, but I went to Biola, so, you know, go Eagles, ah, but, uh, <laughs> you know, and I got my doctorate from Talbot School of Theology, and I start researching this, and I see in the 1930s, Talbot, of Talbot School of Theology, 
actually goes in print arguing for the separation of races and saying all sorts of racist things about black folks. But Talbot School of Theology is named after a guy who actually like goes on radio and in print arguing this stuff? And, 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 and Church of the Open Door, this, this church, and even Biola University, they both leave the downtown as it was diversifying. There's a doctoral dissertation done on this, The Rise, the Decline, and the Renewal of the Megachurch, a case study on the Church of the Open Door by G. Ted Martinez that he chased down the flighters and he captured their stories. It's, it's sad. Norman Rockwell, recall the picture of Ruby? He also had a a famous painting in 1967, New Kids in the Neighborhood, that, that just captures this. Perhaps the picture of the white evangelical in the 1900s was, was Billy Graham. As you start digging into history, you find out that, you know, Billy Graham preached to whites-only stadiums. Did you know that? He, he preached to stadiums where if you were black or brown, you wouldn't be allowed in. Like, like this is the real history. And while the Reverend King was offering the I Have a Dream speech, in which he stated that he had this hope that his children could play together with white children. While that was going on, white evangelicals were having segregated evangelism crusades. Billy Graham was actually invited to the I Have a Dream speech, but he didn't attend this monumental 1963 march on Washington. And you know what his response was? He goes down in print and saying, only when Christ comes again will little white children of Alabama walk hand in hand with black children. Now on the one hand, Technically, theologically, he's right. I mean, when Christ has come, he's going to judge racism and evil and all sorts of perversion, and he's going to establish shalom, and it's going to be great. But on the other hand, man, you are missing it. Now, I'm happy to report that, actually, he, he came around, and he recanted, and Billy Graham uh, had a change of heart, and he, in fact, worked with King, and he invited King, and they did some stuff together. As a sidebar on this, I, I want to note on a theological church history note, King's theology was all over the place. It was liberal, it was messy in places, so I, I would understand some reservations with some of this, but not on the grounds of race. On the other hand, if I'm going to critique King, I also need to, I also need to critique Billy. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of his preaching sounds like watery Charles Finney easy believerism. And I look at that and I go, well, like, what was going on? Again, vertical and horizontal, sin messes things up. The backbone of the church to decry this injustice wasn't in place. We have a watered-down church, a racialized culture. Keep these things in mind. Brown versus Board of Education, Los Angeles, Mary Crawford, private schools fighting for kids to go to school. As schools are forced to diversify, you know what happens in this history? White folks, evangelicals to boot, start launching private schools in order to, to avoid desegregation. There's a fantastic book written on this by a sociologist, Dr. Mark Mulder at Calvin College called White Flight Evangelical Congregations in Urban Departure. And as you look at this, you see this history, it's so sad for our people, for white, evan white evangelical folk in the room. You know that Bob Jones and Jerry Falwell fought school desegregation. These are noted white evangelicals in the 20th century. Bob Jones University refused to admit black students to their university until the 1970s. And you know they had a no interracial dating policy on their campus until 2000? I shared with you earlier my academic institution, Talbot Seminary, named after a man who argued for the separation of races. And the racialized worldview was common in that day. You know Westminster Seminary didn't admit blacks until the 1950s? You know that Dallas Theological Seminary didn't admit blacks until 1968? I could go on talking about our academic institutions. They were on the wrong side of this. Coit versus Green in 1971 was a, a U.S. Supreme Court case that, that came down on our private institutions. And basically it said, you can't hide behind your nonprofit status or whatever and get away with sort of fighting for segregation. But Bob Jones and Falwell, they still resisted. They still fought. And in fact, they said, fine then, we'll pay taxes. Bob Jones decided, instead of desegregating, he said, fine. I'll pay taxes then. You can't tell me what I'm going to do. Bob Jones himself personally wrote and contended, a Negro is best when he serves at the table. When he does that, he's doing what he knows how best. And the Negroes who have ascended into positions in government and education and this sort of thing, you'll find by and large, they have a strong strain of white blood in them. Bob Jones University. You guys ever play them in basketball? I hope you beat them good, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, he... 
Bob Jones Jr., uh, Bob Jones, the school's founder, argued for racial segregation. He said that it was mandated in the Bible. Long story short, BJU fought the government. They ended up on the losing side. In 1983, the Supreme Court decided against BJU. They had to comply, and so they had to allow this. And so what they did is they said, fine, then we'll desegregate, but they added in their student handbooks no interracial dating. And as I noted, that continued up till 2000. Now, I share with, this, I share with you this history so that you can see and kind of cultivate an empathy and, and build your homardiology out to see, man, sin is nefarious. It ripples through things. And our people, people who read Scripture and, and who affirm the deity of Christ, the triunity of God and all this, have, have, have messed this thing up. Martin Luther King Jr. famously lamented that Sunday mornings are the most segregated hour in our culture. TMU students, this isn't going away. And you're young, and you have a lot of life left in you. And I hope this, this talk will just sort of spur in you a sort of sympathy for what has gone on as you think about particularly your place in the urban center. And with that, let me wind this down. Recall my beginning points. I said if you get lost in them, come back to them. First, things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Second, the triune God of heaven has sovereignly created good works for us to walk in the elect in Christ. And third, and third, the supreme good of the God of the Bible is his glorious gospel, which foreshadows what is supposed to be and anticipates what is to come and the sovereign plan of the Father and the power of the Spirit by the ministry of the church and the return of the Son. I want to submit this to you. I want you to think about the theology we saw in Genesis and the ripple effects of sin. I want you to think about the hope that we have in the gospel and the good works that, that Christ will call his people to. At present, the evangelical movement in white America is largely unaware of the plight of those who have been decimated by slavery they're uninformed about horizontal homardiology that we've covered. And the fruit of this is seen in the fragmentation of evangelical churches. And it's seen whenever the topic of race comes up and you get these talking heads on both sides missing each other. We have a massive divide in the church. The evangelical church, however, carries a message concerning the deadly and the powerful effects of sin and the mighty power of God to save us. And because of this, our hope is not in humanity to save ourselves, but in a merciful God who saves the undesirous and justifies the undeserving. A merciful God who takes the sin problem and wraps it in his skin in the incarnation and reconciles men to himself, both vertically and horizontally to one another. The church needs to be the ones who trailblaze this. And it's sad that we haven't, but we have work to do. The civil rights movement was once tied to the church, and now we have all these liberals and godless nonprofits running around doing it. We have a social gospel, quote-unquote, that is no gospel at all, and it is running rampant. But we have a gospel that is a real gospel from a God that is really real, that addresses the heart of man and brings us into good works, good works that can transform the places that we find ourselves in. After all, as the scriptures say, you cannot say that you love God if you don't love your neighbor. And the Bible tells us that we are to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. So I, I pray, dear brothers and sisters, particularly you in the majority culture, that you'll just learn to be slow to speak, and you'll learn to mourn, and you'll learn to listen to others when they talk about their hurts. And you'll think about the history of this city, and you'll think about the, the harvest that is in this city, and you'll go into the city, and as you do, you won't forget the garden. As a result of the fall, the descent of sin that has continued unabated ever since, you'll go back to the garden, and you'll, you'll see how the garden explains all this, how Genesis explains all this, and how the Word of God reveals the problem and the way of out, and how the Word of God anticipates a new city, a new Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters of TMU, I pray you will live for that day, and I pray in the meantime you'll be involved in biblical local churches, preaching Christ, awaiting the rapture of His church, and His sovereign restoration in the fallen world. And you'll see the harvest in Los Angeles. You'll know that it is plentiful. You'll know that the workers are few, but you will sacrifice not to flee the city, but to give yourself for the city to see Christ reign supreme and transform this place. Thank you for your listening. TMU, many blessings on you. Let me pray, and I'll hand it back over. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for what we have learned of Los Adam and Los Angeles. We've got a fire hose of history of America and California and this city. Um, but Lord, we thank you for the foundation that we have in Genesis and Romans, particularly that we explored. The dark depravity of man 
And the hope that we have in the doctrines of grace that address the depravity of man, our concupiscence that will be handled by the Christ. And so, Lord Jesus, we come to you and we cry out, as the prophet of old Isaiah did, Woe are we, for we are ruined, for we live among a people with an unclean history. The history is dark and it's sad and it's twisted. The ripple effect remains with us. There's things still lingering in the darkness. And so, Lord, I pray that you would raise up in this room young men and young women that would shine your light, that would rely on the hope of the gospel and the power of the Spirit to see these things changed and renewed. And they would do so with biblical clarity and deep compassion. Have your way with us, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray.